Well, most of my knowledge about courtroom settings comes from anything I've seen from TV and movies. Who can forget the especially courtroom scene in A Few Good Men where Jack Nicholson points his finger and screams at Tom Cruise saying, you can't handle the truth. The courtroom, as it appears in TVs and movies on the screen, is always so dramatic and interesting and fast-paced. I love it. But there's uh, one legal phrase that I'm aware of, mostly through those TV shows, but I know it plays out in much less dramatic courtrooms on a regular basis, and that's the phrase contempt of court. Just the words kind of make me think, uh-oh, <laughs> something's wrong here. That's pretty serious, contempt of court. In the movies, I can just imagine the judge slamming down the gavel and yelling at the person, you're in contempt, a la Jack Nicholson's voice. And although it does play out in courtrooms every day with far less drama than in the movies, contempt is a pretty big deal because it's disrespectful in a way that undermines the entire court system. And when we're talking about a system that was designed to help people, to uphold laws and maintain social order and enhance our sense of community and well-being, that's a boundary that needs to be addressed. When someone thinks that they're above the law, you've all heard that term, turning their nose up in a sneer at an entire system, well, that's not only a breach of communal trust, but it's also a way of expressing contempt. In legal ease, the purpose of recognizing contempt of court is to secure the dignity of the courts and the administration of justice. That's its mission. So when we hold contempt for the dignity and the justice, entire systems fail. Relationships fail when we fail to pay attention to those things. Social scientists actually define contempt as anger mixed with disgust. So go ahead for a minute. Just conjure up in your minds a time when you have felt or witnessed anger mixed with contempt. It's not a pretty picture, is it? A 19th century philosopher by the name of Arthur Schopenhauer said that contempt is the unsullied conviction of the worthlessness of another. Ouch. Contempt is when one person thinks that they are better than someone else and then sets about excluding, ignoring, diminishing, and distancing themselves from the other because they see them as not even worthy of the time and energy that it would take. So researchers in 2014 actually studied human conflict and they coined a phrase that maybe some of you have heard of. It's called motive attribution asymmetry. Motive attribution asymmetry is when you assume that your ideology is based in love while your opponent's ideology is based in hate. It's that simple. 
So this group of researchers also found that Democrats and Republicans in America today suffer from motive attribution asymmetry that is on the level of the ongoing conflict between Palestinians and Israelis. In both cases, the two sides think that they are driven by benevolence, while the other side is evil and driven by hate. Now, I'm not just picking on politicians, even though, to be fair, it is pretty low-hanging fruit, but I bet you can think of a few high-profile headlines that are full of that kind of lopsided thinking. My way is right, I'm right, I'm doing the loving thing here. Your way is wrong, you are wrong, you're not expressing love. And if I'm really being honest, there are times in my life where I've failed to see my own lopsidedness. And so I look at Peter today and in today's reading and his discipleship throughout his journey as an example of how I can keep that kind of thinking in check how, in fact, we are all called to recognize when we're falling into that and learn how to call on God to help us seek clarity and discernment in those times. See, Peter could have easily turned this Jesus movement, the early days of Christianity, into an us-versus-them moment, fostering contempt for the other side. In the book of Acts, we get to really see him wrestling with this. Peter and the other disciples faced huge issue-driven divides in their day. They had this monumental task of spreading the gospel of Jesus, and there were ample opportunities for disagreement. Peter and Paul argued over whether the followers of Christ should be circumcised as the Jews had been since the covenant with Abraham. There were heated arguments about hypocrisy, saying one thing and doing another, and about who should be allowed to preach and teach, and so many more issues, no doubt. They were having to make consequential, significant, meaningful decisions in real time. And we get to see the human mind at work in Peter's propensity to revert back sometimes to the way things had always been. Tradition trumps innovation because it's easy. It's a known entity. It just feels right to do what's always been done. So it would have been easy, as I said, for Peter to begin to get a little puffed up a little full of himself and let his ego take over. He had been chosen for this role, after all. He could have fallen into the trap of thinking that he was better than others, that his teaching was the right way. It would have been easy for think, him to think that he was coming from a place of love and others came from a place of hatred or evil. Plus, he was a devout Jew, so what did it mean that Gentiles now were playing such an important role in his religious community? But despite all of these questions and 
real-time debates going on, Peter had something else going for him, something that we all have as followers of Christ, and that's the Holy Spirit, the advocate, the guide. You see, we see Peter wrestling with all of these things, but we also get to see how he navigates his way through these incredibly tough decisions that'll trickle down through the generations and that we still are impacted by today because of what he and others went through at that time. But Peter in particular, he describes for us in today's reading from Acts a vision, a vision from heaven. He sees something like a sheet coming down from heaven, and it's loaded with all kinds of food, birds, animals of prey, reptiles, things that would have been forbidden for devout Jews according to their dietary customs, foods that wouldn't have been kosher. And he hears this voice telling him to eat them. And in the vision, he says, no, no, Lord, I would never eat those things. I would never disobey our religious laws. And the voice from heaven says, Peter, what God has made clean, you must not call profane. Don't call it sacrilegious. Don't call it disrespectful. Three times this happens, this back and forth, and each time Peter resists until finally everything gets pulled back up into heaven. And then we're told that immediately after that, Peter had three men arrive at his house. Three Gentiles, we're told. They wanted to take Peter to see a man named Cornelius, who was a Roman military leader, also a Gentile. And Peter says something really really important to us. He says, the Spirit told me to go with them and to not make a distinction. The Spirit told me. Remember Jesus saying elsewhere in Scripture that my sheep hear my voice? As followers of Jesus, we need to be able to discern the voice of Jesus, the voice of the Spirit, the advocate, our guide. So Peter heard the Spirit speaking to him, and he listened. And the Spirit said, do not make a distinction. God was saying to him, these are your people too, and they are my people. Do not hold them with contempt. Now Peter was also getting signs and reminders all throughout his journey at this time, signs that were guiding him. Take, for example, in Acts 6, we learn that the disciples were criticized for not taking care enough of the widows. It was a long-standing commandment, as I know you're aware, dating back thousands of years, that God's people were to take care of the most vulnerable in their communities, right? God specifically had told them to care for the widows, the orphans, the strangers, the poor, the sick. It was a command that every one of God's people knew they were to obey. But everybody got busy. They all had work to do after all, traveling and setting up church communities, preaching, defending themselves before the courts and whatnot. And when powerful people get preoccupied, preoccupied with powerful things, the first to suffer are almost always the vulnerable among us. So the disciples do correct that. We know in 
the book of Acts, that they then set up a system to help care for the needy. They take that seriously. They help care for the widows, and almost immediately after that, Paul goes to visit Tabitha, who we heard about last week in our scripture reading, and he sees firsthand the difference that caring for the, the widows makes. He sees how lifting them up out of their position, honoring them, right where they are, making no distinction between them as human beings and any other human being in any other state of life. And it brings them joy when that happens. It brings God honor when that happens. See, God wants everyone to draw near to God, to be part of God's kingdom in order to be filled with a spirit of peace and joy, to have the Holy Spirit as a guide. God does not distinguish between human beings because God created us all in the image and likeness of God. So Peter understood that. And, and so when Peter arrives at the home of Cornelius that day, at the home of this Gentile Roman military leader, and he says he watched as the Holy Spirit fell upon the people in the household, just as it had on Peter and the disciples at the beginning, he says. And you might recall, because we've talked about this very recently, just a few weeks ago we heard the descriptions of Jesus coming in to the upper room where the disciples were and breathing the Holy Spirit into them. In just a few weeks, we're going to celebrate Pentecost, the day that thousands of people received the gift of the Holy Spirit. So Peter's remembering all of this, and he says, if God gave them the same gift that he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who am I to hinder God? He saw with his own two eyes the equal distribution of God's love poured out on them, God's favor and presence. He saw no contempt for anyone, only an invitation, the same invitation that we all receive to come and follow Jesus. And Peter's response says it all. If God wants them to be included, who am I to argue? It's an unbelievable moment of clarity. It is not our job to hinder anyone from coming to God. It's not our job to exclude people because we have ideas that they are not who God wants or that we have the right ideas and everyone else just doesn't get it. Exclusion has never gotten us very far in bringing about the kingdom of God, has it? We think about what Christians have, who Christians have fought to exclude over the centuries. Pagans, Jews, Muslims, gays, couples who had sex before marriage, unwed mothers, divorced couples, scientists, evolutionists, people who thought the earth was round, people who were considered witches, those who had divergent opinions from the official teaching of the church, Christians who just seemed odd. Over the last 2,000 years, Christians have beheaded, burned at the stake, tortured and terrorized and lynched their enemies, even 
while they declared publicly Jesus' command to love them. I would guess that most of us hear those ugly reminders of days gone by and we thank God we don't live in such times. But do we not? Just like the early church, we are in a watershed moment in time. Perhaps like Peter, we need to prayerfully consider who we are leaving out and why. Do we see ourselves as equal heirs in the kingdom, equally beloved in the eyes of God? Or are we at risk of holding others in contempt? What beliefs and ideologies might need to be reconsidered in order to help bring about the kingdom? Where can I help bring about human dignity and justice for all? Because after all, if God wants them included, who am I to argue? Amen, and let us pray.